Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Just a quick note that today's episode is going to be a rerun. The next season of the Psychology Podcast will begin later this year. I haven't taken any break in five years of doing this podcast, so I thought it was about time to take a step back and think about how I can make this a better experience for you all. Until then, enjoy these episodes from our archives. So today I'm really glad to have Elaine Aaron on the podcast. Elaine is a research associate at State University of New York, Stony Brook. She's the author of The Undervalued Self, along with numerous other books, including The Highly Sensitive Person, The Highly Sensitive Child, and The Highly Sensitive Person in Love. She began probing emotional and relationship problems from the nature side with her study of high sensitivity, an inherited trait in 20% of the population. Now, Aaron turns to the nurture aspect and the critical problem of self-worth. Thank you, Lane, for talking to me today. I'm glad to be here, Scott. It's really nice. Yeah, I've been a long time admirer of your research from uh, many aspects, you know, uh, as, a, as a researcher and scientist, but also as someone who I would identify as highly sensitive. So thank you for, you know, let me just start off by thanking you for um, all the great work you've done on this topic and, um, and, and how much you've really transformed lots of people's lives. So well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. I especially like talking to highly sensitive men who've well, they'll say they're highly sensitive. I, I, I know that the best interviewers and writers almost always are highly sensitive, but sometimes I'll get on a radio or a TV show and some men will be giving me a really hard time about the research or making a lot of jokes. And then I'll just say, you know, you might be highly sensitive yourself. Most of the best interviewers are, but uh, I've found 
most men have a real complex about sensitivity because um, it's difficult in our culture to be highly sensitive. And uh, 50% of, of uh, people who are highly sensitive are men. It's, it's the same for men and women. It's not like it's mostly a female thing. Well, that's a really good point. I, I didn't expect to actually start off with that, but um, since you went in that direction, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. So we do have these like masculine stereotypes and we have this like you know, are you familiar with like the alpha male versus beta male right. distinction? Mm-hmm. And it's such a um and I've written about this before how it's such a um oversimplified binary distinction that is just not um really in line with it doesn't really show the full possibilities of what people are capable of becoming. I mean you can be a assertive and sensitive person, right? I mean, you can be, you know, the, the, you don't have to be aggressive, but you can certainly have a strong identity as well as be highly sensitive. These are not mutually incompatible things, right? No, not at all. I'd say maybe the reason for those stereotypes is that because sensitive men are looked down on, they do have low self-esteem, but there's no reason to look down on them. I, I think of the uh, the um, four letters I've now kind of adopted for describing it, depth of processing, being easily overstimulated, so it's D-O-E-S, being uh, emotionally responsive and being sensitive to subtle stimuli. Well, if uh, a person is processing things deeply and sensitive to subtle stimuli, that person should be able to come up with amazing strategies for getting their way, not always in an overtly yelling and screaming kind of way or a cruel or bullying way, but um, watching for opportunities and making alliances and getting their way that way as kind of quiet leaders. Oh, yeah, I love that. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with like Susan Cain's research and the, the whole quiet revolution um, showing that you can absolutely be a quiet leader and uh, mm-hmm. you can be a sensitive leader, right? I mean, yeah. probably the best leaders are sensitive. <laughs> Yes, there's a good uh, uh, LinkedIn article by John Hughes about why uh, highly sensitive people make good leaders. I also have a book that by Harvard Business School that was done a while back. Sure, you can send it to me I later. I might have and... to email that to you, yeah. Sure, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, good. You know, before I encountered your work, in which I encountered actually really early in grad school, um, your book, highly, The Highly Sensitive Person, I discovered in grad school. But before I discovered it, what I thought I was or I, what I thought was the dimension of personality that is represented by which now I have a great understanding of with your research, I thought it was just simply neuroticism. It painted it, you know, in a very negative – there wasn't any upside to neuroticism, right? You know, like right. when, you read, when you read The Big Five, you're like, okay, that's just what I am. And my whole life before I encountered your work, I thought I was just in – anxious mess of a human being. But, (laughs) you know, but but I did feel like, you know, feeling things very deeply. I have memories of being very, very young as a child and just feeling, just like, just feeling the whole world on the back of my, you know, the whole weight of the world on me at all times. And, but, you know, I think it's not just a framing issue. Am I right? Like, it's not like you're just repackaging neuroticism. I mean, you would argue there, you know, this is, you have really discovered a um, something that may be a part of neuroticism might be a part of it, but that it's it goes beyond it. Is that right, Elaine? Well, sensitivity is not actually related to neuroticism if you partial out statistically having had a troubled childhood. Oh, which interesting. Not all the people have had. If a sensitive person has had a good enough childhood, they don't have unusual what we call neuroticism, depression, or anxiety. 
Now, we are more emotionally responsive. So that that may be a misunderstanding you had about your emotional responsiveness because we, we can worry, but we can also feel great joy. We can um, be sad, but again, we can also feel very happy. So the fact that we have stronger responses can cause people to say yes to all the negative items on a neuroticism measure, but there are no positive items that it also score high on. Do you see That's what a, I mean? I do. That's a really good point. And I, I liked how in your original scale, because you started off with a lot of items which you then cut down for statistical right. reasons, but in your original scale, you had a lot more you know, your items weren't all, all about being overwhelmed or frazzled. You had a lot mm-hmm. more items about, you know, falling in love deeply, crying easily, um, right. and, and, you know, positive as, as well as some other positive items. That's correct, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, and it's a flaw of the scale that it has so many negative items. It's, it's causing some problems. At the time, I didn't know really the underlying thing behind all four characteristics, which is depth of processing. Right. and so there aren't any questions in there about that. And the negative ones held together well, but we also were looking for items that men and women, that there'd be no gender differences on. And so crying easily, for instance, was eliminated because there was a big difference in genders. So I think some of the negative ones were just also more gender neutral. Interesting. Wait, so the more now, positive ones were more more males or females? Just, Did you... I think just by chance they were more female, but I think it was okay. just, we just weren't, we shouldn't have let so many negative items get in there. But right. they were the ones that did hold together well. And the reason they're there is that they're mostly measuring overstimulation, right. which is what sense that people are most aware of usually because the people around them are most aware of it. So their emotional responsiveness, they may learn to hide. Their sensitive subtleties, that's not uh, easy in, unless you're comparing with somebody else. Did you see that flower? Did you see that detail in the painting? People often don't realize that they're more sensitive to subtleties or, or don't associate it with being overstimulated at least. But uh, but uh, it's it's clear that that's an important thing that happens to sensitive people and that they have in common. Absolutely, and and there are multiple facets of sensitivity, right? So you have the um, over you have these overstimulation aspect, but you also mm-hmm. have like appreciation of beauty. I I find that really interesting that statistically that that loads which might be part of the openness to well, experience domain. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you there because yeah, yeah, talk the, to me. <laughs> the, the three factors that people have identified are actually yeah. kind of artifacts. The thing that was amazing when I created that questionnaire was how many different things people would say yes to. So I did not Oops. make it as unidimensional as I could have. Instead, I found that when people said that they were appreciated the arts and music, they also tended to be easily overwhelmed when there was too much noise. So they correlate very well, but it is still possible to, I mean, from our point of view, the factor analysis showed one dimension, but yes, there were three that didn't load very high, but other people have made a big deal out of them. So it's a little annoying to me 
that <laughs> whole factor business. And we're now doing a study using a fancy new statistical technique called um, bi-factor analysis, which is showing that, yes, there are three factors, but there's but the important factor is the overarching single factor that holds them together. So, see, I find that um, so interesting, um, and I think that's that's a that's a good point. I mean, you could break it up, and you could do this really precise factor analysis, and you could show that it's like the different factors are differentially related to different big five traits, right? But right, but the yeah. problem is, is now you're not looking at sensitive people anymore. Yeah, because if you just take. Uh, appreciate aesthetic thing that could be a cultural thing. You just take easily overstimulated by itself. That could be a neuroticism item. So right. or, uh, neuroticism factor. And one person took the sense to, uh, overstimulation and related it to autism measures. Well, that's sensitivity is the opposite of autism. But you have to include the, those three, and I think actually four aspects in order to understand, in order for a person to really be highly sensitive. And as I say, the depth of processing didn't get in there at all. The aesthetic could have been the depth of processing, but they weren't worded right. We needed things like, I I like to take as long as I can to make a decision. I like to think about the meaning in life. Um, It's important to me to have deep conversations that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. So I have data on that. Um, uh, I'm just I got excited all of a sudden. Um, I'll, I'll share. I won't like geek out with you right now, but I'll share with you through email. We did a I, we study with Susan Cain because we're trying to create a new scale of introversion. And the two major facets of introversion that we developed was um, stimulation and um, uh, and need for deliberation. And, 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 and I, and we administered your HSP scale. So I, okay. I can actually show you like the need for, deli- need for deliberation right. and how that relates to your HSP scale. Anyway, I'll show you, I'll show you that. That, that would be fine. I, I think, you know, but since 30% of highly sensitive people are extroverts, you have to be really careful yes. and not eliminating them or, or just ignoring them. Absolutely. Kind of upset. Um, <laughs> Susan Kane and I, um, she came to one of my workshops and she, she, I felt I wasn't real happy with what she did and she knows it, which, but I can understand because no publisher would want to see a second highly sensitive person book. Right. But by, but by overlapping, but yeah. not, you know, having that overlap and not complete that. There are introverts who are not highly sensitive. There are highly sensitive people who are not introverts. But it feels to me as though most of how she's defining introverts is high sensitivity. And yeah. it, it works because that's how it's been for a long time, but it would work better if it, if, you know, the need for deliberation, the being easily overstimulated, it's true for, for a bunch of extroverts as well. So, yeah. Anyway. No, look, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's a good point. And um, what we, this is, what's interesting is that the scale we developed is based on self-report uh, of identification mm-hmm. with introversion. So a lot of people mm-hmm. that maybe I, HSP, what they really are is HS, highest HSP, they're identifying as introverts. Well, they certainly a lot yeah. of them would yes. because if 30% of them are extroverts, Correct. 70% of them are introverts. Correct. And if they're taking the scale because they identify themselves as introverts, they're certainly going to, you know. But so anyway, you understand. Oh, I totally understand. Totally. <laughs> right. Oh, totally. I, you know, I talk about this. Um, 
And, um, you know, to, to, to Susan's credit and, uh, you know, uh, since that the release of her book, I mean, she's been very open to hearing the latest science of this stuff. And, you know, um, mm-hmm. and we've, we've been talking a lot about how these are separate dimensions of personality and we're trying to figure out what exactly is introversion, what exactly, mm-hmm. you know, what differentiates, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an emerging line of research. It's really neat, you know, understanding like – how um, introversion has more to do with uh, reward sensitivity to environmental, uh, reward, you know, like the appetitive rewards and stuff like that. And that's not necessarily the highly sensitive uh, person. Um, but even within the highly sensitive person domain, there's different ways of being sensitive. You know, some people, um, you know, personality researchers would say that every single one of the big five is actually a different form of sensitivity if you think about it, right? Like you have like the extroversion introversion domain is sensitivity to environmental appetitive rewards. Um, openness to experience would be like sensitivity to the reward value of information. Um, neuroticism would be threat sensitivity to threats in the environment. And you could just go one by one, right? So there's actually mm-hmm. different forms of sensitivity. The problem is the ZHSP scale does not correlate with any of the big five. So interesting. Um, yeah, the, and I tried once to create a big five. Uh, I tried to create an HSP scale out of out of items in the big five because somebody had done a lot of genetic research with the big five, and I said, well, let's see if the genetics correlate with the HSP scale, but they right. haven't given it. So I said, I'll try to create an HSP scale out of the items you have given and see if it correlates with our scale, and then you can use that scale. No, I couldn't find anything in the big five. But openness to experience comes close, but it, it in some studies it's correlated, but most it's not. It correlates quite a bit with neuroticism, but not if you factor out the difficult childhood. I find that that specific finding, you know, with the interaction between um, contextual factors or developmental mm-hmm. factors, because that's mm-hmm. not really um, it's not really taken into account that much with an in big five research, is it? You know, the developmental no, factors. No, yeah. it's not, and certainly ends effect uh, would be affected by that for sure, and and culture and environment is, uh, you know. I have a problem with the big five, and I've had it from the beginning, and a part of yeah. it is their description of introversion, which, as you know, is pretty negative. You know? Yes. And, and then the thing is, is it's taken, it was lexically derived from the words that people use to describe other people. But yeah. high sensitivity is not an easy thing to observe. Like Jerome Kagan observed in children that some of them hesitated before entering a room full of fancy toys, and he called them inhibited, and then the other kids were uninhibited. Well, right. you can see an inhibited behavior, but again, you don't know the cause of it. It could be fear. It could be that the child just wants to stop and observe before entering. And in fact, there's some nice research where they they looked at the adrenaline and cortisol of children in that same experiment that same experimental paradigm. And they found that children who had secure attachments or who had been left for a half hour with a sort of babysitter person who was responsive to them entered and had a, more adrenaline than, than the uh, uninhibited children, but then immediately settled down. A cortisol did not go up and they started playing. Now, if they had an insecure attachment or a poor right. caregiver, then they had the adrenaline response followed by a cortisol response. They were anxious in that environment. And 
this whole subject has to do with differential susceptibility, which is a huge subject in uh, developmental psychology and sort of coming into adult personality and genetics because uh, it just goes back to that neuroticism issue that if an individual is raised in a poor environment or put into a poor environment, those who are environmentally sensitive, that's the term they're using, environmentally sensitive, will be affected worse, more, you know, much more negatively than a, a individual without certain genetic markers. But wow. the people with those same genetic markers or scoring high on the HSP scale, if they are in a good environment, or if you do an intervention to improve their emotional health or to improve the way they're being parented, they do better than other children. And that's pretty weird. Jay Belsky, who's at UC Davis, who's kind of a bad boy in psychology, wouldn't bitterly bet out, but he's a, he's, um, he likes to say things that are a little outrageous. And he wrote an op-ed for the New York mm -hmm. Times in which he explained this. And he said, to save money, we should not do interventions with, with any children except those that are highly sensitive because wow. it's not affecting the others. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> but of course, everyone wrote in and said, this is, this is racial discrimination. This is like Nazi, you know. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of funny, but it was also the way he put it. Like, we're just going to give it to these people. Yeah, yeah he could be, he could have been more sensitive in how he phrased that. <laughs> yeah, but he, he likes to be outrageous. But it's yeah. an a interesting observation. And Michael Pruis, who's uh, in London, he did a study with teenage, well, preteen girls in disadvantaged school setting uh, trying to prevent depression. So, and he also gave the HSP scale. And it turned out that they did a sort of a resiliency intervention and measured one year later when the girls were, I guess, in starting high school or in high school. And they found that the, those who scored uh, in, in the upper one-third on the HSP scale got a lot from the intervention and were not depressed. Those who scored the two-thirds that scored lower did not get anything from the intervention and had the usual rate of depression for girls of that age. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. striking. So that is so striking. Yeah, this is part of the message I'm trying to get across. That you know, these are not weak people at all. The same idea that you had: these are not weak people. These are, but right. they are more affected by their environment. So for better and worse. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's the yeah. phrase that, that yeah. they use: is for better yeah. and worse. Yeah. Yeah. The um. Uh. The the orchid dandelion hypothesis. I think that has been right. dubbed in popular that's, media. That's, yes. Yeah. Well, Tom Boyce is working on a book on that. That's Tom Boyce's phrase, and he's at UCSF, oh. and he's a brilliant researcher, and he's been studying children who are physiologically reactive. You can't give children, you know, MRI tests or or right. even give them self report. So, but he's been studying this for a long time. He published the very first differential susceptibility article. He found to his surprise, he was in public health at the time, that children who were more reactive, their immune systems and their nervous systems were more reactive, had more illnesses and injuries if they were in a stressful home and school environment. But if they were in good environments, they had fewer 
colds and injuries. I think they were just looking at colds and flu. Had fewer infections and fewer injuries than other children. So that was back in 1997 or 96. That's so interesting. And I think David Dobbs was also working on a book on the Orchid Dandelion. He's just a journalist. Uh, yes, not just yes, not just I, a journalist, I, yes. but a journalist. Yeah. No, right. Yeah. No, I know. I don't know what happened to his book. I don't know if yeah. it's come out. I know he wrote an yeah. article for Atlantic. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I don't know either. Um, I want to return to something you said earlier because it perplexed me a little bit. You said that um, autism was the opposite of HSP. Yes. I've, I I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Uh, I'll listen. Yeah. Because what autistic children have problem with is processing information at all it doesn't get distinguished it doesn't get sorted out so a light bulb is as interesting as the face in front of them uh they, they don't cue into social stimuli especially i see now the sensitive person the opposite is very attuned in socially and and is processing information carefully so that it knows where to put its attention for instance uh with the genetics that we associate with sensitivity, they make very good gamblers because they're paying very close attention to the odds and they don't want to lose. And they do want to win because they have stronger emotional responses. I doubt very much if you put an autistic person into a gambling situation that they would be very successful because they wouldn't be able to calculate the odds. I don't know. Maybe they would. I can't say for sure because there are always these Autistic children who are particularly skilled in something, and they might be good at counting cards or something, but um, for the most part, they're opposites because of the way they process information. Both get overstimulated, but for different reasons. The sensitive person is overstimulated because they're processing things so carefully, and the autistic person is overstimulated because they're unable to sort it out and throw some of it, some of it away. It's like everything's coming in equally. Well, that's really I never, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. Like because I I always you hear a lot in the autistic community that um, the research community that sensory processing sensitivity is a characteristic of people with autism. But that's it. it that's the you added some additional nuance there to that. Right, because yeah, to my mind, the the research suggests these four letters, D-O-E-S, and also the fMRI research suggests And the genetics research is right on the cusp now. We just had one study associating it with the short allele of the serotonin transporter gene, but we now have a bunch of studies that are going to come out and, you know, not come out. We're going to know the results in a few months, but they'll have to be written up and published before we can talk about them. But we do have one study that was done in Denmark that did find that relationship. The reason that's important is because it opens up a whole lot of other research that's been done on that short allele that then we can say, well, HSP is like that and like that and like that. Some of it already overlaps. But there's an FMR study, fMRI study that got the same results as we did. The short allele versus the HSP scale yielded the same results in a particular research design. So so that will be pretty interesting when that happens. But you mentioned different kinds of sensitivity, like thinking about the big five that way. Yeah. And we know that dopamine uh, alleles are also involved. Some people <clears throat> in China did uh, 
a massive study and, and found that there were seven dopamine alleles that predicted the HSP scale. And by the way, they also um, tried, I believe, the big five. They, what they said was frustrating that although we know personality traits are innate, uh, genetically caused, they don't correlate well with, with any genes. The, the big five does not. Mm. So they decided to use the HSP scale, which they, they felt was more deeply rooted in the nervous system. And there they got the kinds of correlations they expected from between right. personality measure and genes. So we have dopamine genes, serotonin genes, probably some other genes, I'm sure. So it might very well be that if you have more of one set of genes than the other, you know, that your sensitivity might be different. Like some people might have better social sensitivity and some people might have uh, keener, you know, non-human sensitivity, you know, uh, yeah. sensitive subtleties in their physical environment. And there's right. differences in sensitivity to, to music, um, you know, to all the artistic skills and people, sometimes people are very sensitive to sense of smell and not every single one of those are highly sensitive in the broader sense but many are so sometimes I think it's like being dealt a bunch of cards and if you have um, if you're strong in one suit you're highly sensitive but the, the cards within that suit vary a lot and so I haven't gone into the kinds of sensitivity very much it just seemed um, right I don't I, I think finding genetic variation would probably be easier than trying to do kinds of sensitivity at, at this point. I don't know. I think behave, like the behavioral research would be might be easier than. Um, oh gosh, the genes research is hard to rep. It's uh, it's hard to find replications. It is, but the problem is is that I think that the genes, when we can figure them out better, right, are are going to be more accurate than. If I make up a test of five different kinds of sensitivity and give it to a thousand people, there's right. going to be people who score high on each of those. But does that actually mean that there are five types of sensitivity? Right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And uh, I mean, certainly, like you could be, you could check off that you get very frazzled or overwhelmed by uh, by mm -hmm. lights and sounds and scents, but you could also not be very sensitive to people. Like you could not have high compassion at all, right? So they can pull apart. Well, you know, I, it's hard to say because we did a study, fMRI study, you know, functional magnetic resonance imagery, mm -hmm. and we found that um, with just 18 subjects, those who scored high on the HSP scale showed remarkable differences in their in the activation in the parts of the brain that are associated with empathy. Wow. So. I'm I'm just not sure that there are different types of sensitivity as I've defined sensitivity. Right. Because because this is this is pretty amazing study that and some of the parts of it have been replicated, so I'm pretty clear about that. So the mirror neurons are more active and the insula is more active, which is sometimes called the seat of consciousness. Right. And, right. Uh, certain certain other areas that's just 
doesn't, it's, there wasn't very much variance among these people who scored high on the HSP scale, at least in this area, they had high levels of empathy. Well, I find that really interesting. When I look at your HSP correlation with the, the agreeables to, agreeableness dimension of the Big Five, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see a statistical correlation there, though. But that's not necessarily empathy. So, yeah. well, no, because yeah. if you look at agreeableness, to me, it's about dominance and submission. It's like oh. you, you agree really? with people. Yeah, if you look oh. at the idol, they're oh, not about being nice. They're about. Well, I mean, they are sort of about being nice, but they're not about compassion, particularly. The, 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 ext- the extroversion dimension, I thought, was more about the dominance. but um, Well, the agreeableness is more about submission. <laughs> uh, maybe you're right, actually. Maybe, I don't know. That's a, that's a, I've never thought of it that way before. I'd have to look again at the items. I mean, it's, it's, that's the, always the question in any major, is what are the actual items? Because people think, that, for instance, this BIS, BAS, Scale of Carver and what's his name? You know, the, Shire, Shire, no, yeah, maybe Shire, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody's using that BIS, BAS scale. Uh-huh. The BIS is totally wrong. It has nothing to do with Gray's BIS system, the behavioral inhibition system. And I love Gray's it, theory. Nobody listens to it. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. I, I don't know much about that scale, but I love Gray's theory. I love the theory. Yes, yeah. yeah, I do too. But he said that it, behavioral inhibition system is a pause to check system. It can't be just responsive to threat because you don't know ahead of time whether something is a threat or not. And and if you were born with a system that responds to everything, you know, if a strong BIS means responding to everything as a threat or being more likely to see everything as a threat, then you would miss opportunities. Now, what he says is the BIS um, mediates between the BAS and the fear system, the fight flight right. system, and it tells you whether to go for it or to not go for it, which is quite different than Carver's um, measure, which is all about being sensitive to threat only. I see. So it picks up on all kinds of neuroticism stuff, and people love it because oh, look, the behavioral activation system people are so. <laughs> so lovely, and the BIS people are such a mess, and so of course I'm very sensitive to those kinds of results and those kinds of assumptions, which have been around, as you know, for a long time. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and and as as we're having this conversation, I'm crunching some numbers on the spot um, of the mm-hmm. study we did. Um, so, um, Colin De, my colleague Colin DeYoung created a, a a new scale, the Big Five, that uh, actually uh, splits compat like within agreeableness. It splits up compassion versus politeness. So, some of the mm-hmm. kind of items in compassion are things like feel others' emotions. So that certainly does sound like empathy to me. Inquire about others' well-being. Um, mm-hmm. sympathize with others' feelings. So, um, so uh, I'm, I'm actually, I, uh, we can keep talking, but in the background, we're going to run the correlation between your HSP scale and that mm-hmm. aspect of the big five. So, hey, I've never done this before. I've never in real time done a data analysis while I was having a podcast <laughs> interview. So, <laughs> like you're good at it. So, um, so in cool. that, in that data set, you have the HSP scale and that, that Correct. part of the, oh, that's interesting. Correct. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to be running that in the background. Um, <laughs> I love uh, it. Yeah, I know. I'm such a nerd. Actually, I mean, so, I mean, it's great. Like this conversation allows us to, um, to dive in at a, at a sort of deeper level of, um, mm-hmm. discussion than, 
you know, you probably get asked the same questions over and over and over again. Right. And well, uh, the politeness thing you would you would think would correlate with the HSP scale only because low self-esteem tends to correlate with the HSP scale. Why? Well, because when you're 20% of the population, everybody thinks you're sick. Oh, that's a really <laughs> good point. It's a little point. bit hard to have high self-esteem. Really good but point. If you, if you're raised in a family where you're so oh. tired. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I have the results. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a sample of 493 people, very um, diverse um, population. Um, and I found a statistically significant positive correlation, 0.222 um, uh, at P levels, 0.000 uh, between the, co- the compassion aspect and your HSP scale. So, yeah, I don't think anyone's ever looked at that the, that new uh, Big Five Aspect scale so that actually teased apart the – so let me tell you, no, let, me, but, let me look at politeness. Let me look at politeness now. Maybe we can find well, like a dis- disassociation. Mm-hmm. So let, mm-hmm. let me just for that – let me just run the – okay. So, um, okay, so it turns out that the politeness aspect is also positively correlated with your – yeah, sensitivity – So, um, yeah, both politeness and um, – uh, but then see if the whole scale correlates with the HSP scale because you may have a sample that's more diverse than right. the sample. So the whole, you mean the whole agreeableness to mean? Well, yeah, because yeah. it could be that when you break sure. it down, it's, it's correlated with both. But if you take the whole thing, it's not. Sure. Okay. So let me do that right now. Um, okay. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is uh, 0.216. Um, so, so there is something going on there. And, and so I kind of, stand corrected in a way um, because I, I never thought to run this analysis. So I'm glad we had this conversation because I, well, I, I could, stand corrected yeah. because I said yeah. that I didn't think the HSP scale in our studies had correlated significantly right. with any of the right. uh, big five. But yeah. Apparently it does correlate with agreeableness in your Yeah. Sample. Yeah. We'll have to see if that um, replicates. You should look at the yeah. openness to experience too. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll just stick in the whole big five right now. <laughs> Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So the highest. It's, here's the whole big five profile. It's point uh, five five three positively correlated with withdrawal aspect of neuroticism, which like it's a it's a emotional withdrawal. Um, and I can send you the the BFAS. You can see the items later if you want to. So items like well, what, I, I, what about the overall correlation with the five factors? Do you have that? Um, yeah. So you you yeah oh, absolutely. I was just I was going through the aspects, but let okay, me. Uh, but I can act, I can go through. Uh, would you well, like the aspects of the aspects of neuroticism? Again, are kind of muddied by that um, by the interaction and needing to partial out. Troubled childhood thing. Yeah, so that's hard to. Yeah, without being able, I can't. I certainly can't parcel that out right now. Um, But no, um, you don't have those kind of questions. But um, but let me just go through some of the aspects because it offers some finer, (laughs) more finer nuance. So yeah, so both neuroticism aspects, volatility and withdrawal, are positively correlated. uh, 0.553 and 0.426. Industrious um, within the conscientious domain, it's negatively correlated with industriousness, which is like ambition. So that's kind of interesting. Um, right. it's positively correlated with orderliness though. So there's a double, there's a dissociation within the conscientiousness domain that right. it is, it is positively orderly, but negatively with industriousness. Yeah. I always uh, thought it would be correlated with conscientiousness. That I thought would be the strongest and it didn't. So that explains it because they've got that. Let's 
strange yeah. thing to put it. Conscientiousness is, is being sort of achievement-oriented. I know. That that's, it's in the competition, and I joke yeah. that, you know, sensitive people are not too fond of competition because they don't compete when they know they're going to lose. Exactly. And when they know they're going to win, they don't think of it as competition. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They just do it and they're good at it. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And then with the introvert and extroversion to me, and the, interesting enough, the correlations are, are, are kind of weak. So negative with the enthusiasm, right. negative, it is significant, negative 0.187. But as we know, that's not, I mean, that's not as high as the neuroticism ones. Um, and negative with assertiveness, negative 0.280. And then in terms of the openness to experience domain, and I think this is interesting, it's not correlated at all with the intellect component, um, which has mm -hmm. things like I, like IQ related kind of questions, mm -hmm. but it is strongly 0 0.406. So just as high as the neuroticism with the openness dimension, because um, this, wow. this, this scale That's splits. Really yeah, the scale splits yeah. the I, the IQ part from the uh, appreciation mm -hmm. of of beauty and um, of reflection and daydreaming right. stuff. So well, that's, yeah, that's got a lot of that depth of processing. In exactly, it. Well, that's really great. That's really yeah. So that that shows that there's a distinction here between quick thinking and deep thinking. Exactly, and, and your scale exactly. correlates with deep thinking, deep not thinking. quick thinking. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right, and and the I don't know whether you'd have to look at the items in the in intellectual scale no they're like that they're they say things like i i answer i solve problems quickly i mean they're literally that, that kind of that's that's a <laughs> they don't ask whether you solve them <laughs> accurately <laughs> well, i dealt like, with in this culture that i a bad decision made quickly is admired more than a good decision that took a long time to make <laughs> you yeah. know we, we, sure. we want our president to be you know not to think too long about things we want him to be a decider <laughs> to take action and they well, take the wrong action well at least he was able to make decisions <laughs> well some of the items do have accuracy a little bit so i am quick to understand things um so i guess that does mean like you do understand it i yeah, guess it could, uh, that could be like intelligence yeah have difficulty understanding right. abstract ideas which is reverse coded you know so right. I, I like i i I'm, so yeah so it really is it's that's more iq related and and i think you said even in your own research you didn't find much of a correlation between right IQ, we only right? did one one measure of it, but and and right. I've been very hesitant to go into that because right. people who study gifted children say that they're almost a hundred percent highly sensitive, and Correct. I just I just don't know what to make of that. And, and one thing that I wonder about again is whether sensitive people on a whole score poorly on IQ tests because of lack of confidence, you know, stereotype threat kind of thing. Well, that was certainly my case. Um, I, a, a huge test anxiety. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you you know it's an IQ test, you know. Yeah. Your identity and all yeah. of a sudden you can't do it. But I really like that split between openness and intellect and, uh, and the, your HSP scale. I really like that finding. Yeah. Maybe like I should that. publish that. Should I publish that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think it, you, you've got some interesting results there. Yeah. Because, you know, except for the correlation with N, which is, I say, you can pull yes. that apart. Um, nobody's found much except a little bit with openness of experience. And you can see that some of these scales cancel each other out in effect. Yeah. No, absolutely. From the HSP scale point of view. Absolutely. 
Um, so I, I have, um, I don't want to take up you know, much more of your time, maybe 15 minutes more or so uh, tops, yeah. but um, I, it's, it, I didn't expect to go in this direction. So I have like a thousand more questions and don't worry, we won't go through them. <laughs> but um, uh, let me just try to like on the spot here, pick out the ones that I absolutely think would be essential to discuss. Um, so something I think is interesting is you talk about how a lot of HSPs actually are also high sensation seekers. And that could right. seem to some as a paradox, right? But right. you're saying it's not necessarily a paradox. No, because what I had to do with Zuckerman's HSP scale was take out the impulsive risk-taking items. And, and so I had to revise it to, to take out the danger, basically. Because what sensitive people are not is impulsive. They're not going to do things that are dangerous. But they could be highly curious and wanting variety in their lives. So I had to, to tweak his scale. And I never published this. It's just huh. so many things to do. <laughs> I know, I know. But, Trust me, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, and the reason for this is that if the BAS and the BIS are separate systems, then you could be high on both of them. And, that, and that's what we found is you can be high on both of them if you think of the BAS as high sensation seeking. Sure. So, um, so the opposite of sensitivity is not being not interested in sensation is the opposite of sensitivity is being impulsive, not R thinking, not doing any depth of processing before you do something. Right. That's why I talked about that intellectual problem. I solved problems quickly and I said, yeah, but is it accurate? <laughs> because uh, one study of uh, introversion, extroversion one time ago found that introverts wanted to take more time to solve a problem. And they were more often right because of it. So, so going back to your question, yes, and it's very interesting because these people have a very hard time. Well, they're often in the media. They're often journalists and going around and meeting new people all the time uh, because they, they love variety and yet they also get overstimulated. So it's like one foot's on the gas and one foot's on the brake. And they've often been labeled as self-destructive because they do more than they can handle. But it's because they're so attracted to, to variety and to new things. So it's an interesting combination. And there are quite a few. And there's somebody, Tracy Cooper, who's writing a book on, on it. And Oh, really? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a very interesting deal. And these people are harder to identify as HSPs from our stereotypes because they're often engaged I mean, I knew one who did uh, hang gliding, and one is a policeman. Wow. <laughs> you know, we don't think, well, why would an HSP do that? Well, they use their sensitivity to be safe at these things, but they love the excitement of it in terms of, you know, they're, they're, they're safe when they do it, but they like the novelty. As a policeman, I remember he, he said that he, um, he, he likes to be out on the street because he can sense when something's going to happen. Hmm. Yeah, maybe um, because you're so sensitive, uh, maybe you even need a greater sort of threshold to, I don't know, I'm just like putting this out there. Like, there, you know, you might be like so sensitive that when you um, encounter something that's enjoyable or thrill-seeking, um, you actually get a heightened experience from it than other people. Right. I think yeah. so because yeah. the the research, the brain research, and and my sense that people are having 
positive experiences that are stronger as well as negative experiences. Exactly. Reason for the differential susceptibility that a kid in a good environment is soaking up support, soaking up interesting, you know, stimulating, enriching experiences, it's soaking up all of this, which gives them confidence and social skills and all of that. And, you know, there's a great study of the short allele of, of, of Rhesus monkeys. And uh, Stephen Sumi is now at NIH, I guess. Uh, he's got all these Rhesus monkeys. And he used to call them uptight and laid back. And the uptight ones, it turns out, have the short allele. But he, he agrees oh. now that the quote, uptight ones are actually highly sensitive because he has taken them and put them with, taken them away from their mothers, and not too good, and put them with very skilled mothers, and then they become the leaders of their troops. Oh, wow. So, and, and they're, they're leaders through, like I said, through alliances and through uh, clever observation, not through banging each other on the head. So, right. <laughs> so I know you have a lot more questions to ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to get into uh, just a, cu a couple questions on you on love that you've studied with highly sensitive mm -hmm. people in love. You can have mm -hmm. different combinations, right? You can have two really high right. highly sensitive people, and but you can also be with a partner. You can be highly sensitive, be with a partner who's not really highly sensitive. That must be really frustrating, right. maybe for both people, right? Or it could be. Well, we did one study. <laughs> 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 uh, my husband, we were going to a conference like social relations, he said, he wanted me to go with him in Israel, and so I said, well, what would you like to study? And I said, well, let's look at boredom. I said, I, I think highly sensitive people may be uh, more more easily bored in their relationships, and so we found, yes, they're more easily bored, but they're, when, they're easy, when they're bored in a relationship, they're not more dissatisfied. Their relationship is still satisfying to them, which looks to me like they've just accepted the situation, <laughs> um, that, that it's hard to find a deep conversation and a deep conversation in a relationship. I mean, half, two thirds, three quarters of the time you're figuring out who's going to make dinner and where the, when's the car going to be taken in and you know, right. when are going to do vacation. It, it's hard to have deep conversations. So um, I think the problem with HSP, non-HSP combinations, and I've written about this a lot on the highly sensitive person love, uh -huh. there's going to be lots of conflict. But once you understand that some of these conflicts are based on temperament, which cannot be changed, once you accept the differences, you can get quite creative in making use of each other's abilities. Yeah. My husband is not highly sensitive, not highly sensitive. Um, relies on me in many ways for my sensitivity. And I rely on him for his non-sensitivity in the sense he doesn't huh. really be overstimulated as I do. But, uh, yeah, sometimes it's frustrating that there's certain kind of places that he wants to go with me, but he doesn't in the sense of being able to ask me. He can understand me, but he can't ask me. Or he can't, right. I'm sorry, he can't contribute as much. But that's okay. I'm used to that. Yeah, and you would still say he's he still is compassionate. Oh, absolutely! I yeah. have to be so careful about the meaning of the word sensitive. Exactly. Because exactly. It has other meanings, and he's sensitive to my needs. He's extremely sensitive. Exactly. Exactly. I and, wanted to make that and, clear. Yeah. And in fact, I joke that when quote sensitive people are tired and overstimulated, they can be very mean, <laughs> 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 very insensitive because they just 
feel, no, I can't do anymore. I can't. Yeah. Frazzled. Yeah. 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 And also picky because if you're sensitive to people rattling their keys or coughing too loud or chewing with their mouth open, I mean, we can get pretty irritated about those things sometimes when it's a nonsense the person does it. Fascinating. Um, and you've gone into different kind of research, uh, or, or um, not different, but um, you started to study the identity and, um, and 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 the self, like the idea of of having a true self worth. I'd love to know, like, um, how you like what is <laughs> true self worth. I know, I know, and literally in five minutes, last five minutes. But maybe, maybe you could come on some other time, and we could just talk about the self worth stuff. Would you be down with that? Like, yeah. like mid midnight, like six months from now or something. Sure. Um, yeah, but maybe just for the five for the last five minutes, just to wet people's appetite, so they can read the, your your yeah, waiter's I, book on the topic. Yeah. The um, I think that all social animals when they're with other animals, when they're in the group, are doing two things. They're ranking and they're linking. If you watch a herd of horses, for instance, a group of horses in a pasture, if you bring a carrot to the fence, one horse is going to get that carrot. And if anybody else tries to get it, they'll turn around and bite them and kick them. That's the alpha mare, the alpha gelding, usually. It's not usually yeah, yeah. a bunch of in the pasture. But, uh, and, but at the same time, if you watch them, Certain horses are friends. They like to stand together and swap flies off each other, and they just hang out together. And so we see friendships, and we see ranking, and we see this in human beings. But if you are in ranking mode, if you're, if you're at the moment, this is what's being stimulated in you, or this is the environment that you're in. You're, you're competing for a job, or you're and competing for a promotion and you're looking around at the other people and you're thinking that way. And um, you know, in a tournament of some kind, something like that. So when you're ranking, the question is, where do you rank yourself? Right. And, and interestingly with animals, and I think it's probably true for humans too, is that to be safe, it's a good idea to have an overall sense of your rank. You know, we know that, well, a person could be good at tennis, but not be good at math, and they might be really good at this, or they wouldn't be good at that. But people still have a sense of their overall self-worth, and it's some kind of additive thing. And it's very instinctual, because animals, if if they're going to decide whether to fight or not for that carrot, they'd better know how strong they are, how strong the other one is, you know, and what is strength? Well, they have a whole sense. Well, I'm feeling good today. I'm as young as that horse. Um, I got. I can really bite. I can really kick. I'm going to try it. And the other horses probably have tried it a few times, and they have an overall sense of themselves as not as strong as the alpha mare. So we do have this sense of overall self-esteem. When we're in linking mode, it's largely irrelevant. And right. it's interesting that if you ask people to make a list of the people who make them feel good to be with, the people who make them feel bad to be with, <laughs> yes. the people on the pe- you feel good are the people with whom you link. And there's yes. very little ranking going on. Um, yes. The people who make you feel bad are the people with whom you rank yourself. Even people who rank themselves lower than you, you don't respect them, so it's not that 
pleasant to be around them if that's that's what they're going to be constantly bringing up. I remember having a long time ago a friend who was constantly saying, oh, you're so much better at that than I am. And I found it not comfortable. And why would I want to be friends with somebody who thinks <laughs> um, I'm so much better? It's supposed to be flattering, I guess. But Maybe it's that agreeableness aspect <laughs> that you're talking about, the submissive or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so the, the, yeah the submissive side yeah. of the agreeableness. Yeah. Really ranking. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so my point about it was that it's hard to know your true self-worth if you're, I, I really was going into the the fact that people who, who are troubled in other ways tend to have low self-worth because they're constantly in ranking mode. They're, right. they're not linking as much as they're ranking. They, they go into a party and they start thinking about who's, who's, better than them and who's not as good and they're comparing in that way right. rather than charging in and starting to link. And I don't think that's so much about extroversion, introversion at all. I think it's, I think it's, well, there are those correlations of extroversion and kind of assertiveness, but I think again, those could be teased out because the, I, I kind of think neuroticism has a lot to do with ranking because there's one guy who studied depression in animals, and he thinks that depression is our instinctive response to being defeated. That what we need to do is crawl off and don't try it again. Just feel bad about ourselves and, and have low energy and low initiative and feel defeated. And then we won't get hurt because if we just charge back into the fray again, we're going to get hurt more in terms of like animals that are in a cage together. You, the one that's defeated had better go crawl off and, or he's going to get beaten up. So right. depression is a lot about feeling defeated and hopeless. Correct. Yeah, no, that and makes of sense. Course, anxiety is about, am I going to be accepted or rejected? Can I do this or am I going to look like a failure? So well, what is true self-worth then? What is, what is true self-worth? True self-worth would be having, first of all, I think the self-worth in a ranking situation is established because other people like you. You, you feel your sense of self-worth from people's loving you or caring for you or wanting to be around you. Right. And I define linking as being attracted to someone, wanting to be around them, and wanting to help them if you can. So, boy, if people are treating you that way, you have self-worth. <clears throat> so, if I like how ranking, you... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, I like how you you're bringing in like the environment matters. <laughs> you don't all, you don't always hear that in when people talk uh, yeah, about self-esteem. Yeah, well, how do you establish your self-worth if it hasn't been through social interaction? Well, so wouldn't some people argue that like a, a stable sense of self-worth should be independent of how people treat you? Well, not how people treat you now, but if your sense of self-worth surely comes from your history with people. Right. The childhood or the right. teachers that somebody have given you such a strong sense of self-worth that being around somebody who doesn't like you hardly affects you. That's like a secure attachment style. Because okay. Most of that is established early on, but it's still social. I mean, Got, we, we gotcha. can't have any identity without without social interaction. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Speaking as a social psychologist now. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, so you are one of... Um, 
I would say one of the best social psychologists of all time. Um, well, not to be thank too you, dramatic. Husband, you know, we're we're quite a pair. You know, he, you guys are. <laughs> you guys are, and you guys. Did you meet in 1967? Is that when you guys met? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I find it so touching. Like you know, just from like a personal perspective, like. Um, yeah, I saw a picture of you guys like very early in your career. He's like got this big hair, and is it, oh, yeah. you, you yep. fell. Did you fall in love with that big hair? <laughs> <laughs> yep, that was the sixties, and yeah, uh, he was a pretty crazy guy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you guys have just been such a you know amazing team, and you did all this work on love, and you found you know you did this great thirty six questions, and found that yeah. um, you could actually create create love in the laboratory by having people right. becoming right. more right. intimate with each other so with all that said i'm going to end this whole interview today with one question i want to ask you which comes from the list of 36 i'm not trying to make you fall in love with me i just want to tell you i just want to i picked out one question from your list of 36 questions that you found so we'll have fun with this given the choice of anyone in the world whom would you want as a dinner guest (laughs) that's funny because i've actually thought about that question because i keep changing my mind Right. Well, I think I think of all the questions, that's the one I thought about the most. <laughs> is that good? Is that good then that I asked you that one, or bad? Well, good yeah. and confusing. Yeah, I wrote yeah. a paper called uh, "A Table for Four: My Dinner with Carl Jung, Martin Buber, and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi." So right there, I couldn't decide. Right. But the one that comes up with me today was, I would like to have dinner with Jesus. Wow. Because. I think he is the most confusing. Um, you know, we don't know what this person was like. But then I think, no, I'd like to have dinner with Buddha. <laughs> maybe Muhammad. Because, you know, I have a lot of spiritual interest in these people get so warped by over the years by just like, you know, you're playing gossip and, you know, somebody says something in the, Oh no, he said that. Oh no, he said that. And pretty soon it has nothing to do with what he actually said. So I'd like to meet some of these people. Yeah, why, why just pick one? Uh, you know, I think all those are fine. And I think um, when when your husband was asked once, I think he said Socrates um, was Socrates, the person. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely, because he's really, really <laughs> loved Socrates. I would love to see Socrates and Jesus have a conversation. <laughs> that would yes. be fascinating. Yes, <laughs> that would be great. Hey, um, thank you so much for your time. I know this, this interview is a little bit longer than some of my other interviews, but I think we covered a lot of ground. And um, thanks for being yes, so generous and talking to me today. That's fine. Thanks a lot, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next season for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.